Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. Um, Before we begin, I would like you to know that I sit here before you this morning as a prisoner of my conscience. Uh, I want to stay in bed this morning in solidarity with Gary Lineker, but uh, apparently they couldn't get anyone to replace me because they were all in solidarity with Gary Lineker as well. So so here I am, but I'm here under sufferance. So under sufferance, I'll read you the headlines on the front pages now. Charles plans All-Ireland summer tour which sounds like an RT reality show as if he's going to go around in a camper van with Catherine Thomas, but it is that he is uh, his first visit after the coronation is going to be to Ireland. That is King Charles, I, I should say. Um, the Business Post, McGrath assessing small landlord tax breaks rejected by Donoghue last year. So these were uh, rejected for, for the budget last year. They would include the deduction of local property tax against taxed income on rental properties, an exemption from PRSI or USC, a lower income tax rate or an exemption from tax on the first 14,000 of rental income. They also have uh, an interesting little sidebar there. Ryan and officials get burner phones for visits to China. Eamon Ryan and his officials travelling to China for St. Patrick's Day have been ordered to leave their internet devices used for state business at home and they've been given so-called burner phones. They're like, you know, one-off throwaway kind of phone. So basically, we're going over to make nice with uh, China and to, you know, promote trade links and everything. We don't even trust them enough to use our phones while we're there. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy, isn't it? Uh, The Sunday Independent... Uh, revealed political motive to lift ban on evictions. So they're, they're saying here, Jody Cochran has a story that the government feared an extension of the no-fault eviction ban would have seen a dramatic increase in homeless numbers close to the European and local elections next year. So they're saying there it was a timing issue, essentially. The Sunday Times Hotel mock VAT rebate with price gouging, that's all in quotes, on St. Patrick's Day. So we've seen about this for the last few weeks, about the prices of the few hotel rooms that are left uh, next weekend and um, the Murr has a Hollywood Frights a story about Kerry Condon and it's it's kind of a, a story about something that happened at the start of her Hollywood career but there's a nice little bit in it inside about her watching um, the uh, Oscar nominations being announced with Colin Farrell Colin Farrell said she came to his house five in the morning. She was in her pajamas. I opened the door. In she came. Kettle came on. Cups of tea. Box of Ferrero Rocher. And that was it. Isn't that nice? And the Sun on Sunday penalty shootout. Revolt destroys BBC Sport. Lineker won't back down. Tim Davy, I'll not quit. The Observer. Lineker Row threatens to topple BBC chiefs and hit asylum plan. The Telegraph. I won't quit, says BBC boss, as he hints at climb down. And our panel this morning, Professor Alan Barrett is an economist and director of the ESRI. Linda O'Sullivan is a special needs assistant, a FORSA campaigner and a member of the Labour Party. June Dorn is an estate agent from June Dorn Properties in Carlow. And Kevin Doyle is the group head of news at Media House Ireland. But I'll ask you first to put on your headphones, guys, and we'll go back to that front page story on the mail. And I'm joined now by John Lee, group political editor of the Daily Mail Group. Good morning, John. Morning, Brandon. So your front page exclusive today is about preparations for a visit from Britain's King Charles this summer. So what do you know about the trip? Well, officials and um, Gardaí have been tasked with doing the preparatory work. This comes from the same sources that would have uh, given us 
the details of Joe Biden's visit in April. We wrote that story in December. So what usually happens is these uh, officials across um, the groups who would organise any state visits and um, those in charge of public buildings have been asked just to do the, the scoping work, as they say. But then the big work will come for security. And they, they, all they've been told, um, the Gardaí and those officials involved in that end of it, is that it'll be a north-south visit and sometime in the summer. There's no official time, of course. The big date to consider is King Charles III's coronation on May the 6th. So sometime after that. Um, not quite as close in in timing as we had, <coughs> excuse me, as we had with uh, Barack Obama and, the, and Queen Elizabeth II back in 2011. But they would hope for, and these are these are government sources I spoke to um, last week. They would hope for some form of uh, um, repetition of the conciliatory uh, influence those visits had back then. Yeah, the and, and the general, I'd say the general feel-good bounce as well, like the local dignitaries do love one of these visits. Will, they, will this I'd be Charles' like first official visit uh, after his coronation, do we think? That, that's what they're saying, and we, we um, our sister paper in, in Britain, uh, the Mail on Sunday, also their royal uh, royal sources have, have, have confirmed to them that he would hope to see it as his first official visit. I think he has frequently expressed his um, affection for this country. He has, he has pledged, I think it was um, you have Kevin Doyle there, the Irish Independent, did a good toss of the counties he has yet to, yet to visit, which brought it down to about 11 in Ireland, because he has said publicly um, that he would like to visit every county in Ireland before he dies. And, and Loud is one of the places he hasn't visited, and you seem to be saying today Loud could be central to both the Biden and, and Charles visit. Well, that was discussions with um, that was discussions with um, the Gardaí. They have been told, and we wrote the story again back in December that Loud is somewhere that's very high on uh, on President Biden's um, agenda because his ancestors come from there. I think Sligo Mayo as well, but his real links are in are in are in Loud, and you know their their discussions have been around the fact that one of the counties, the Prince, the Prince, uh, Char- sorry, King Charles. Hasn't visited as loud. And listen, and Bill Clinton could be on the, the way as well, could he? Pardon? Bill Clinton could be on the way as well. We won't know ourselves. Like, our heads will be spinning with excitement. Well, again, I suppose th- this is all part of, uh, of efforts to uh, urge people to re-establish um, uh, the Assembly and get everything up and running uh, around the time of the, of the Good Friday Agreement anniversary. Now, that's... That target is is looking probably unlikely now. I, I don't know. Maybe they will get it done by then. But certainly, Bill Clinton was was incredibly influential in the securing peace in Northern Ireland twenty five years ago. And what with Bertie Ahern's rehabilitation and um, Bill Clinton's desire to come here again, they feel uh, Gardaí again have been told to prepare for. Uh, the visit of Bill Clinton also around that time. I mean, there are no set dates yet. Okay. John Lee Group, political editor of the Daily Mail Group, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, how excited are we about about this? Kevin Doyle, you're beaming with excitement. <laughs> well, not really, Brendan. It shouldn't come as a surprise. I think that he's going to come, perhaps if it's the first visit, that obviously has its own significance. But uh, King, Char- or King Charles, but as he was Prince Charles, pretty much came to Ireland every summer, COVID aside. And it had actually kind of reached the point where in the newsroom you're going, 
Will we bother covering that? Your man comes over all the time and he's just going around doing his thing. So there was almost, um, he, he knows the country so well. And John mentioned that tot that we did before the counties. I hope he's kept a list of the counties he's gone to because it's actually quite hard to, to keep track of where he has been. So it makes sense. Yeah, you, you would think, though, that him coming as king and if it is his first visit and everything, um, Alan, it's... It, it, the temperature is going is going down, isn't it, between Ireland and the UK a little bit. Yeah. Sunak has calmed things. There's been a de-dramatisation of everything. Mm. This could have no, that effect too. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're sounding cynical this morning, Brendan, but I'm, I'm going to burst the cynicism and say no, I am no, genuinely no, excited no, no, but that's, about yeah. this. No, I, th- I think it's absolutely fantastic, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, if you think back to the Queen's visit in, in 2011, I think there was a, a real sense. It, it, it vastly sort of exceeded expectations in terms of the feel-good factor uh, that it generated. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, Brexit uh, created such difficulties in Anglo-Irish relations uh, for quite a while and have consumed a huge amount of sort of political energy and have seen things on so many fronts stall. So it's not just the visit of the king himself. It's it's, it's the combination uh, of events, uh, partly Sunak's arrival uh, in Downing Street, his desire to actually get a deal done uh, with, with the Europeans, which seems to have happened. Uh, if this can, in some sense, now be consolidated, I know there's, there's still the difficulty about the deal and how they'll react. But why this is a really, really important uh, point is that 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, one of the great disappointments in Northern Ireland is that economic growth hadn't really followed in the way that was expected. There was always this talk about the peace dividend. But really, uh, the Northern Ireland economy has stagnated to a certain degree. They've added a a lot of jobs, but it hasn't taken off in, in the way that was expected. Brexit then was a tremendous uh, negative in that context because there was a feeling that foreign direct investment, which was so beneficial in the Republic, that that was not going to happen in Northern Ireland to the same extent. But if we can get everything sort of, you know, back on track... And if the the real benefits to Northern Ireland of this unique arrangement where they can trade with Britain and, um, you know, the rest of the EU, this really does create the sort of conditions that Northern Ireland can see after the political normalisation to a degree and only to a certain degree. But that economic normalisation should really has the potential to kick into gear. So it's almost like we've had 25 years and now in the next sort of, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever like that, uh, I think the, the, the opportunities are, are really quite significant. Okay. Okay. And that's why I think this is brilliant, all part of that choreography. Yeah, June probably will be a good feel-good bounce around this, won't there? Yeah, I think so. And, and actually, when when the Queen visited in 2011, that actually, I think people saw the whole royal family in a different way as well. I'm not a huge royalist, so therefore I don't have a huge opinion on it. So... I'm probably not the best person to... Lindy, you're nodding along there. Not a huge royalist, I'm guessing. I I must confess, I'm not a huge royalist. Um, I absolutely have respect for, you know, what, you know, how long the Queen reigned, but... um, I wouldn't be a royalist. I, I know many that will be excited in terms of, um, you know, the background story of Harry and Meghan and Prince Charles as well. But I I think it's a feel good factor, but I don't think it's um, it's not something that would excite me. But I think it's equally extremely important coming up to the Good Friday Agreement. And, um, you know, it's something that we need to keep and we need to keep negotiations and keep, you know, lines of communication open and positive in terms of ourselves and Britain. Yeah, absolutely. OK, now, uh, notwithstanding all that, there is a civil war going on uh, in, in the UK as well. So who wants to uh, kick us off on, on Lineker here? Kevin? Well, you, uh, they've all gone mad is, is the simple fact of the matter. I think, Brendan, this is... 
there's two things happen. It's, it's totally turned into a BBC story, which actually suits the, the British government, I think, uh, quite well. But this actually goes back not to last week or two weeks ago when, when they started coming forward with the Stop the Boats messaging. But it actually, I think, goes all the way back to Brexit and before because Britain is eating itself. And this is the most gettable manifestation of how Britain is tearing itself apart is the fact that it has now effectively taken match of the day off air because the government has fallen out with the, the main presenter of it. Um, what the main presenter has fallen out with the government. The, well, yeah. it depends how you look at it, doesn't it? I mean, it's it, what, what's happening in the BBC, I don't know how they walk themselves back out of this one because I think, weirdly, Gary Lineker is bigger than the BBC. And that's what this has probably proven to us because we all there's reports in some of the papers today that ITV would only love to pay him more than he's getting from the BBC to, to go to them. And the reality is that what he spoke about as a football commentator um, in terms of the language being used by the British government, I think most people actually probably agree with him on some level, whether they agree that he's right or not to say it. It has been dehumanising. The idea that a whole political campaign has been built around the slogan of stop the boats, um, basically fend off the migrants. The language from Suella Braverman around invasion and talking that millions of people were coming when in reality it's less than 50,000 last year. Um, so there has been a whole propaganda machine around this, which he called but, out but and obviously it? it led to this. Yeah. Was it really a comparison with the Nazis there? Does, does anyone think there was? Well, I think Linda, if you're worried... Linda, do you think it's fair, it was fair to invoke the fa- Nazis? Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. Like, when this came out on Match of the Day, I was thinking we thought things were bad here in relation to the far right, and how wrong was I? Because they really um, trumped us in terms of the language used and how they've the campaign slogan stopped the boats. I mean, that's... It's disgusting. But is, is, why is it disgusting? Like, are they not saying stop these people being being um, pushed into this system? They have said they will come up with legitimate and legal ways for for emigrants it's, to come in, but they're saying they don't want people putting themselves in danger like this. No. You know, paying well, traffickers to, to put way. them into they dinghies. Give them give them an option, and there's no other option. Like nobody puts their children in a boat um, unless the water is safe on the land that they're going to, and that's that. That's what it's about it's like in Ireland when we there we had the Ukrainians and then other refugees and how are we going to differentiate or who needs who needed something more and you can't differentiate between that but like the simple fact of the matter is Gary is using his voice to help the voiceless and to hear many politicians across the UK who are children of immigrants themselves use and campaign with a slogan that's so abhorrent like it's I mean it's disgusting. And I'm, I have every bit of solidarity for Lineker, for the others that are supporting him as well, because, I mean, there's many people within the BBC that came from those families as well. Can I ask you another question? If he was saying, if he had been appearing at like pro-Brexit uh, marches, he, was, he, he did appear at anti-Brexit events. If he was saying stuff like, we must support the government on this, stop the boats and everything... Would you would you still be supporting his right to be speaking out? Do you think everybody would, or do you think it's that a lot of people just agree with what he's saying? I think a lot of people just disagree. You're going to get the the split. I won't say it's fifty fifty because it's absolutely not. Nor is it in Ireland in terms of when we you know the the anti refugee sentiment or supportive of the refugees. But I think it's the I think it's the manner of which he's using his space and his voice 
for the people that don't have a voice. And okay, so I, it I is kind of that people it, agree with that, what it's he's saying. Agree it's with, not, not so yes. much on the principle of yeah. being allowed to speak out. Like, do you not think, Alan, if he, if he was saying different stuff, it could be a very different story? Oh, yeah, no, without a doubt. And I think if he, if he wasn't such a popular character, I mean, there's this yeah. sort of sense that, that he has a certain um, saintliness or whatever like that and, and, and an appeal. But, I mean, you can look at this story in so many uh, different ways and so many dimensions to it. But, I mean, just to take one angle, from a BBC perspective uh, and from a sort of a crisis management perspective, it's it's just breathtaking how, how inept uh, they, they've been. Uh, it, it seems to be one of their core difficulties is this completely uneven application of this principle of, it, of who has to be impartial and what does impartiality actually mean. And of course, everybody's drawn comparisons with Alan Sugar, uh, who is a well-known um, Tory supporter. There, there's and, a and list of them at this stage. Well, it's quite yeah. extraordinary. So why they, they would have uh, decided that, that Lineker was the person to go after. So that was the first strange thing. The other thing is, of course, they have this incredible Achilles heel now. Uh, and this is the relationship with the chair of the BBC to Boris Johnson. Uh, and this, of course, is the guy who facilitated the uh, the, the loan of, of £800,000 uh, to Johnson. Uh, who has not stepped back while that is well, under th- investigation. This, this is yet another. And it, it's, it's almost as if once you start putting yourself in these sort of tricky situations, it just sort of unravels because you, you, you've no uh, sort of moral authority or whatever like that to, to, to really push this. So it is, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's extraordinary the way it, it's unfolded. And uh, I'm trying to think of an Irish comparison. I mean, for match of the day, I know it was sort of technically shown, uh, but I mean, it, for example, you know, the sports results were not broadcast, I think, at a quarter to five uh, yesterday. And I think for even in an internet age, I think it was BBC Radio 5 uh, a few months ago tried to cancel uh, the, the the sports results at five o'clock because there was figure well you know with your phone you can get you know you know how Notts County did or uh, you know Leighton Orient at any point but there was a, a complete backlash about this and these are sort of you know cultural uh, you know parts of the sort of social fabric so for for match today to be broadcasting in the way it was but football focus didn't happen yesterday my God yeah no there's there's a few things you would wonder about though like the BBC is paid by the taxpayer right. Impartiality is supposed to be a cornerstone of public service broadcasting. There are young kids, as we all know, uh, trainee journalists, people working in newsrooms across the BBC who are held to all these standards and who aren't multimillionaires like Lineker wrestling with their consciences in public. I kind of feel sorry for a lot of them who are trying to hold the line in an age of fake news and all that kind of stuff. But I think everybody agrees with you, but but the problem still is the BBC has to decide who has to be impartial and who hasn't. Okay, and it's just this sort of question. Like, get get your policy straight, and any employer will know this. Okay, if you have policies, make sure they're applied consistently, uh, consistently across. Because people people will deal with the rules, okay, and will accept them. But if there's a perception that it's applied to some people and not to others, that's when the difficulty arises. Yeah. And if there was a, a blanket, if, you know, if you get a pay from the check from the BBC, you're not allowed to tweet about anything. That would be clear. Uh, but it seems it, it, it's not at all as cl- as clear as that, which is yeah. one of the problems that the BBC has. Yeah. I wonder, Kevin, the answer to this is that Lineker has to maybe accept in some kind of way that, OK, maybe I went a bit too far this time. And the BBC, on the other hand, goes, we're going to clarify these rules properly so that everybody climbs down a little bit because... The BBC certainly want him back on air. Yeah, Tim Davey, who did his interview, the boss of the BBC, with the BBC last night, said success for him is getting Gary Lineker back on air. And I think they have to, um, because otherwise 
how do they reimagine match of the day without him at this point, given what has happened? So I think ultimately you kind of need them all to go into a room, bang heads. And for Gary Lineker to go, maybe not apologise for what he has done, but agree what happens from here on in. Which a, fr- a friend of his who's on um, I think LBC or something, who's an ex-tennis player, said he was talking to Lineker on Thursday and Lineker said, look, maybe I did go a bit far with that one. So maybe that's Lineker paving, the, allowing friends to kind of put this out to, to pave the way for it. Um Okay, well, look, we're we're not going to solve that one today. <laughs> I don't think so. I still, I still, I do feel sorry for all those people who, who felt they couldn't go into work in the BBC yesterday. I'm sure a lot of them who probably did want to go into work, but I mean, they they couldn't do it, and they're not in the position that Gary Lineker is in. Okay, Professor Alan Barrett, Lindo Sullivan, June Dorn, and Kevin Doyle are staying with us. We'll take a break. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Welcome back. Our panel still with us, Professor Alan Barrett of VSRI, Lindo Sullivan, Special Needs Assistant, uh, Forza Campaigner, member of the Labour Party, June Dorn, who's an estate agent in Carlo, and Kevin Doyle uh, of Media House Ireland. Now, before we get to uh, the eviction ban, June, you picked out the front page of the Sunday Times, hotels mock VAT rebate with price gouging on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, that's that's kind of... It seems... It seems well, it is definitely wrong. It shouldn't. It should. It's. It's taking opportunities. Um, but it's. It's going to stop tourism. Irish tourists going into Dublin or anywhere else to go to an event. Um, I know we have far less rooms than we used to have with Ukrainian refugees taking up different areas, but not necessarily in the city centre. It's just um, we've not got room for this there's not enough it's just going to encourage people to leave the country in yeah. order to go and, I mean re- you could go to damage as yeah well, I mean you could go to definition. you can go to New York for the prices they're charging in this you know yeah. I mean you could go no, to New York and these are the last rooms left and that most of the rooms weren't sold at this price and everything but I suppose well true but yeah, still exactly. it's still not going it's still just you know it's just going to discourage anybody from and next the, year and, even and the flip side of that which you've, you were also looking at is the business post and it's the concerns in the tourism industry around the, the the huge amount of hotel rooms around the country still taken up with refugees and Ukrainians. There's a notion in there of compensation for um, tourist attractions, mm. which you were interested in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the hotels that are taken up with Ukrainian refugees, that's, you know, in the small towns around Ireland, um, they have um, benefited hugely from having full occupancy all winter, like all winter season, long, yeah. and um, at high high rates. You know, so I suppose giving back to those people, like giving them an incentive to, um, you know, bring the bring those rooms back to just tourist and and just casual, you know, um, occupants. Well. I don't see why they should be given a tax break on that or a, an incentive or anything else. It's simply, you were doing this before they came along, before yeah. you had Ukrainian refugees in full houses all the time. You have made hay while the sun shines. Uh, I yeah, know I'm saying I, things, you know, you've, and, and now maybe if you're going to do that, look at different areas where... Maybe go back to pre, you know, September 2024, uh, tw- uh, 24th of uh, February, sorry, uh, 2022, and see what were they doing pr- three years prior to this? What were your books? Hand me, show, me your, show me your returns and say, you know, are you down? Are, are, you, are, are, you, are, you, are you balancing out here? Or, you know, 
you know, or should it just go back to normal? I think it should just go back to normal. I don't think we should. Let them be fend for themselves. Yeah. yeah, there is public money for um, for everything these days. Kevin, you you were looking at that in the business post. The the numbers, the percentages are quite stark in some counties in Ireland as to uh, how many of the hotel beds are taken up and with thus having a downstream effect on the other tourism businesses. Yeah, it's fascinating. One in three beds outside of Dublin is now being used for um, primarily Ukrainian refugees who've come into the country. But it's much higher in some areas that you would normally associate with tourism. So Donegal, for example, more than 50% of the beds in Donegal in hotels and B&B accommodation taken up. And Donegal um, hugely reliant on tourism. Like. Yeah, and and, th- and that's fine because those hotels now have had a steady income throughout the winter season, throughout this miserable weather we've had when none of us are particularly thinking about going up to the hills of Donegal. But the problem is it's the surf schools, it's the local coffee shops, it's the uh, small tourist attractions that are built around those accommodation so centres. So do we need to start compensating them as well now, Alan Barrett? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, my, my take on that, and this, it was more the, the the, um, the story in the Times about the, the tax break, it's still a bit of a mystery to me as to why the, the tax concession was extended um, yeah. at, a, at a time when, you know, the tourism industry, I mean, this was a COVID-related, uh, you know, the, the tourism seemed to have really bounced back. And there is, there's an interesting contrast actually with the paper, the, sorry, the story in the Business Post, because the, the Business Post covers some of the stuff, we, I know we'll come to it in, in a minute, but, but it was around the um, possible favourable tax treatment of uh, of landlords. Now, normally in, in any finance department in the world, okay, they're, they're, they're always cynical about tax breaks, okay, because every sector constantly spends their time looking for tax breaks. Okay, so there's an innate cynicism that this is just always people uh, looking for the system to look after them better. And what's interesting here is, I'm not sure how they did it, but the tourism industry seemed to have been successful in looking for the tax break to be extended when it wasn't entirely clear why that would be. Um, And I'm sure against the the sort of the advice from the Department of Finance, I haven't seen the advice, but I can just predict that that they would have been quite cynical. I wonder is it because it's a big business in rural Ireland in lots of places west of the Shannon where there aren't a lot of yeah, other industries look, and stuff and it's, it's viewed as a very regional kind of thing. It's a science in itself though as to why certain forms of lobbying tend to be successful and, and not others. So I, I don't know precisely how that dynamic uh, worked but the the, the, the notion that the, the, the tax break was expand, extended seemed uh, strange to me. So the notion then that you would have not, not only the tax break but a, a sector looking for additional subsidy um, I, I you know I, I, I don't really get Okay, so presumably they're going to get that too. Then, if you're scratching your head, well, well, if if their lobbying is good as it seems to be, uh, far better for me to argue. So, look, you've kind of brought us on uh, to to landlords and the eviction ban. Um, Linda, you picked the front page of the Sunday Independent, revealed political motive to lift ban on evictions. I did, yes. So um, basically in this piece, they're talking about how they feel this was, you know, a political preservation, I suppose, of particular parties that um, if they didn't stop the eviction or, you know, uh, lift the eviction ban now, that they would do it closer to the time of the locals and the European elections. And you know, it's cynicism, it's political advantage, it's um, it's sa- trying to save face, but I, I really, I, I think the public in general and the electorate are going to remember it regardless of when it happens. So whether it happens just before a local election, whether it happens now, we're going to see an absolute tsunami of evictions of families. I think we're going to see a scale of homelessness that we've never seen before because of this. And look, 
it's a what it points towards is Fine Gael have been in power for far too long they're completely out of touch with reality and what the reality is going to be for people and um, I myself know people that are now facing into the reality of being homeless um, thanks to the lifting of the eviction ban which was going to give them you know ample opportunity I suppose to try and find something there's not many there's not much out there um, and I suppose but that but Did those people not have time anyway they, if if there was always going to be an eviction anyway, there was always going to be a time between being notified and being evicted. That's In Dublin, overall, yes, they'll have time, but I, I mean, it's trying to find places. Yeah. I mean, you go on to daft.ie this morning, I mean, there's very, very little out there and very little that people can afford. And if they're on housing assistance payment or any other payment, they're, they're going to be taken out of the market. We know that landlords still are, you know... We've heard the stories, the horror stories of discrimination towards, we'd say, one-parent families, those in receipt of HAP. And this is where this story is. It's it's so important, but, you know, it's nobody's going to forgive the government for many things, but for this in particular, because if we're out on the streets marching against homelessness and the cost of living crisis, this was a major error on their part to be able to do this now in the landscape that we're faced into where we have Ukrainian refugees as the panellists have said taking up um, the hotel rooms we still have Irish families living in hotel rooms we have no there was absolutely no regard no safeguards put in place for families or for anybody that's going to be faced into eviction and as Ivana Bacic said yesterday um, on the radio that we are going to have a lived reality of people having to sleep in Garda stations and there was absolutely no measures put in place to try and prevent what's going to happen. Well, no, no, there, there are, I think, up to 10,000 more social houses in the system than there were six months ago when the eviction ban was put in. Uh, I think that um, emergency accommodation has been increased. Also, the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive did say the other day when this Garda station thing blew up that we have accommodation for people. Nobody needs to go to a, to a Garda station. So, like, you know, I think there, there obviously there's a, there's a battle of facts going on here, but there are two sides to it all. It's interesting, Kevin, that Lin, what Linda says about the government will not be forgiven for this. A new narrative has taken hold uh, in the last week. And it's in the words that are all over the place. Callous, Linda saying there, no understanding of what, what people... It's like a new... It's it's beyond like what... You can give people all the facts you want. It's beyond that. Has a narrative now taken hold that this government are cold, callous people, which, you know, I'm sure they're not. Like. It's, it's becoming emotional, even for people who look at the facts and figures that you're quoting, Brendan. I think now this has become emotional. And the reason I think that is happening. It's, it's quite clear now, and even from the story on the front of the Sindo and articles in, in the other papers, that housing is going to be the number one issue as we go into the next election next year, which is the local and Europeans. And I think part of the problem here is that if you go back to when Fine Gael came into power in 2011, the economy was wrecked. We were all downtrodden and, and everything was broken. And they said about first and foremost fixing the economy. And Michael Noonan said at the time that we couldn't do anything till we fixed the economy. And arguably, um, they did 
we have a booming economy again. There are jobs there for anyone who wants a job. 2016, Simon Coveney was housing minister. I think people almost forget that at one point Simon Coveney was housing minister, launched Rebuilding Ireland, which was built on a classic end Kenny five point plan, uh, which included ending homelessness, um, increasing the stock of housing, more social housing, bringing existing stock back in and solving the problems that were in the rental sector. That was eight years ago. Since that, We've had Owen Murphy, now we have Dara O'Brien. We've gotten rid of Rebuilding Ireland. We've replaced it with Housing for All. And all of those five pillars that they set out in 2016 arguably are worse. We are in a worse place than we were back then, even though yeah, we have increased they will, the they stock. Will say a, they will say it's a sign of a, of a booming economy and sign, sign of uh, But I think people have lost patience, and, which and, is why yeah. the narrative has changed, is that people have lost patience and because Fianna Fáil yeah. going into and the last this, election this said they could solve and, it. And pushing, not pushing out the eviction ban in some way became like a fulcrum moment for... I think so. Way, it's, they, it's, yeah. it's trying to. It's the fact that there was no big announcement of here's all the things we're doing instead. That it's we're we're planning things. It's always coming. Yeah. It feels like we're always being told housing will be solved at some time in the future, but we're a long time on that road now. Alan. Um, yeah, no, I, I think when, when you hear references to the word callous, um, I have to say, like, I'm so happy I'm not a politician because there are just horrible decisions uh, that have to be made. There are no uh, simple decisions here. Uh, and in terms of the, the eviction ban and, and, you know, when it should have been lifted or, or not, uh, I, I don't have a very firm view on this. Um, I think there are difficulties no matter what way you, you, you cut it. But it seems to me that the, the, the main argument in favour of extending the ban is uh, that in some sense you will have more time to get policies in place that will mean that when the ban is eventually lifted that the problem will be more manageable. Uh, And I I think what I found kind of depressing about the story during the week, it's by the government saying, no, we're we're just going to end the ban now, it was almost like an admission that there was nothing that was going to be done between now and, say, six months' time that was going to put them in a position to to uh, you know move the, the the end of the ban in into the future, uh, and that to me is the most depressing point. Now, if it's the case that no policies are really going to make a substantial difference, well, then you're you know you're at the point that you may as well end the ban now, uh, and very bad things are going to happen. But if policy is not going to improve the situation in six months, the number of people actually who will then be affected by the lifting of the ban will be much greater. And so the actual addition to homelessness could be much greater. And then you have a sort of a public administration that's dealing with a much bigger number of people at that particular time. And you can imagine that it's, it's just going to be uh, impossible. So it's, it's a horrendously difficult uh, situation. But it all comes back just to this unfortunate situation that we're in, that housing policy has failed to deliver at the level that has been needed. And we can get into the blame game uh, if, if yeah, you want. And we, and, but and specifically ve- that there's very little ve- that, that, that can be done between now and, say, the end of the summer. OK. All right. So, look, June, from where you're standing on the ground. OK, I have a few questions I want to ask you. First thing, your thoughts on the eviction ban. Should it have been pushed out? Was it, was it putting landlords off? Was it causing people to get out of the market? Absolutely. Uh, well, it's a combination of a lot of things building up to that. But um, the go, on, evic- go back to that. A combination of what? Well, um, basically, it's been happening for the past two years. Most most of the say three bed semis that I've been selling in the past two years have been landlords getting out. So this is not new to me to say, you know, this is, you know, landlords are getting out and it's, you know, it's all over the papers in the last six or eight months. Or, you know, I know it's longer than that, but, but, um, but yeah, it's... Okay, so uh, why are they getting out? Well, I guess some people 
who bought houses um, and became a- accidental landlords um, back in 2006 and seven, when it was at, at its highest. Um, they found there was an opportunity there. They've outgrown, some, some of them had outgrown their houses, so their, their house became, uh, you know, a rental that they couldn't sell because they still had a mortgage mm. on it, but they could just, you know, get it over the line with the bank. They could actually get another house. They ended up keeping this house. Now that house has has reached a point in which they can now sell. It doesn't mean they make money. Uh, it just doesn't just mean they're going to make money. money. Just enough, yeah, just enough to to get to pay back their their loan. What's left on a okay. loan? And at this point in time, a lot of the, these houses have uh, are reaching a point where they've come back up to what they paid for them. So a lot of people, a lot of landlords are looking at it and saying, you know what, my house is now worth, you know, they ask you, what is it worth? And you say, okay, it's worth 220. Great, that's what I paid for it. I'll leave now because then I won't have to pay capital gains on it afterwards. I didn't mean to be in this space in the first place. Yeah. And also um, the, you know, the RPZ is a, is a deterrent, a big deterrent for some, um, simply because the, the rent pressure, the zone. Rent pressure zone, because, yeah. you know, when you, when you can only raise the rent by 2% and you hadn't raised it because you had an excellent tenant who was paying the rent, keeping the house fine, every, the property, everything was going well and you just didn't want to do it or they had small kids. And, they, you know, most landlords are actually, you know, just ordinary people like you and me. And they, they are, you know, one, one house, maybe two, maybe two, mostly just like a lot of them are just owning own one other property and it's rented out so they have they get to know the the tenant and they have a relationship with them so they didn't raise the rent now they're at a point where that tenant leaves or it's no longer they're um, you know viable for them to keep that house uh, it's costing them money because they're and far be- the interest rates have gone up and they are behind market rent at this stage. But exactly, and they can't put it up it. only by two percent. Okay. So that's okay. that's another. But there's, there are more reasons than that. Like I mean, there's, there's, there's um, the moratorium itself scared landlords. They said, like, if this is going to keep happening, um, you know. I, I, I can't, I don't, I'm, yeah. they're just personally, they're right. on a personal level, they're not able to deal with it in the first place and say, what am I going to do? And it's just the whole, you know, what's happening next, you know, we have... The rent pressure zones were temporary measure initially first, weren't they? Yes, well? and they're not, and they're not in every single town in Ireland. And if that becomes a blanket, you know, RPZ, the whole country becomes an RPZ. But like in a town like Carlow, where I'm operating from, um You've got Carlotown itself, you've Tullow, which is another large sort of market town 10 miles away from Carlotown. But it, the rent pressure zone isn't, isn't in Tullow, so it is in Carlotown. So you'll have this whole thing where yeah. now Tullow is making a bigger price than, you know, in rent than, than Carlow. Okay. And it's a better investment opportunity. But Can I ask you, can I ask you, so... Um, Ono Brin has has a good piece in the Sunday Independent today, but I think two things that he um, identifies, which we... Everyone seems to agree needs to happen, even the government. The government have been banging on for months, encouraging local councils to do more tenants in situ, to, to, to buy up the, a property. If, if a landlord is selling up, buy it up and leave the tenant in there. And it's not happening. And the government has been talking about it again for the past week and they want another 1,500 done soon. Have you, and we've seen the figures, have you seen on the ground, why are the councils not buying the tenant in situ properties? They've been given the money to do it, apparently. Well, they are now, and it's, it's because, it's, um, the, the, from what I've seen and uh, with the local authorities that I deal with on a regular basis, I do a lot of work with social housing bodies and things like that, so... Um, the local authorities do not have the manpower to manage those properties. So it is better 
those properties for um, somebody who's on a HAP scheme or a RAS scheme, they are... Um, so they want, they want to outsource the problem. They don't they want to, want to outsource it. The, yeah, but they, yeah because themselves. they just don't yeah. have the manpower to deal with to deal with the management of the influx of the number of houses that would need to be bought, you know. Okay. But the, yeah. the AHBs are doing it. They are. Yeah, okay. You know? Linda, what do you think of all that? Like you said, I, it's, it, you know, Dublin City Council, it was, I think, 7 to 13 um, it, with tenants in situ and... You know, that was something that the Labour Party called on um, last year in relation to trying to up that amount and to be able to use tenant in situ to save as many families from eviction and for homelessness. I don't think there's a simple solution, but I think a, a part solution would have been to actually announce the end of the eviction ban and then put safeguarding in place and, you know, cooperation between the government and the local authorities to be able to stop these mass evictions which are going to happen and it's going to get worse because they have lifted the ban but I, I, there was no thought process and I think unfortunately that can be said for a lot in housing but in particular our government because a lot of them themselves within government are landlords so they can't understand at all no, Not a huge yeah. amount of them and a falling amount of them I think 27 of them at this stage um, am I, I right Kevin? Yeah. 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 A number, a number yeah. of them have sold up yeah. in the last few years as yeah. well I yeah. think it's a fairly well still that they they have a, you know they're not accidental that they put went out you know obviously to become landlords and you know that that's something that my generation and the younger generation, you're looking at the younger generation are never going to be able to afford to buy a home. A lot of them will never be able to afford to rent a home. And that's a sad reality, but it's a lived reality, so, unfortunately, so that the government understand. What you say there then, yeah. Linda, we, you know, there's all this talk bandied around about don't be demonising landlords and everything. For a generation that can't even afford to buy one house, do they feel an inbuilt demonisation of landlords of these boomers who were around with two and who were able to own two or three properties? Do they resent it? Yeah, they, they, they resent it, but they're angry, and that's what we're seeing in in terms of protests and you know people power. We're angry. You're, you know, you're seeing anger on the cost of living, but angry that you know their parents would have hoped that they their children would have better than what they have. But the the, the example now is that a lot of them in their 30s and 40s are still at home they can't afford to get out they can't afford to rent they will never be able to buy a home and their parents would have you know blood sweat and tears into buying the houses or buying local authority homes back in the day and that was one of the biggest mistakes of the government was that they stopped building local authority houses and we may yeah. not have had this um and we, this look, tsunami of we can't get that now. time back no. but they are building them now uh, I, I think as fast as they can but where that goes over the next few years i i think we don't know um Alan, it, it, it's it's interesting uh, li listening to Linda there. You can explain till the cows come home about right. the long term and how the eviction ban w wouldn't do any good in the long term and everything. But it's this is just visceral now, isn't no, it? No, the, the, the lived uh, reality is horrendous. And I think everybody... Uh, understands that and uh, indeed my, my, my colleagues in the SRI produced a uh, report on this a number of weeks ago but the specific issue there was looking at children and the impact on children both of poor housing conditions and, and, and mobility uh, and I think one of the most heartbreaking things uh, you see is where I mean generally families but kids in particular who build up networks in local areas and schools and stuff like that and because of this instability in their lives are moved along and there are sort of there, there are long term uh, difficulties and I think everybody understands but just a, a couple of points 
points uh, to pick up on what Linda was saying. I mean, this idea that there's a lot of landlords in the governing parties and that's driving policy. If you talk to any politician at any party, if they could solve this problem in the morning, they would solve the problem in the morning. Okay, it's not ideology. You know, Irish politics has often been a sort of an ideology free zone. Uh, If they could solve the problem, they would. And the, the, the dominant thing they would like is to solve the problem to actually protect their seats. I think they're more interested in protecting seats than protecting uh, their their rental incomes or, or anything like that. Okay, good, Linda, go on. You're you're. Like, why haven't they solved it? They, Fine, Fine Gael have been in government long enough that if they wanted to solve it, they would have. But because, and I, I really hone in on what Kevin said there, that like, you know. It, is it that they can't understand because they're not in that situation themselves, but all of us here on the panel know someone that's been made homeless, that will be made homeless, that have experienced being unable to get a roof over their head. Like, we have a story here today about a family of three with a special needs son. That's in the mirror, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, like, facing eviction. I work in a school. I see when children are in homeless accommodation and we talk about ACEs and um, just go back to what Alan said there. But, you know, but, like, but Linda, do you honestly think they don't want to fix the problem? Part of me, yes, because they can't understand their own privilege of being you, able to own a you home. Think they, you think they don't get it? Yeah, They don't get it, no. They're, it's their absolute, it's privilege in some parts beyond belief because they could never understand what it's like to manage a household when you're facing eviction. They could never understand the lived reality of the mother living in a hotel room. They could never understand the shock of when you get an eviction notice and what that's going to do to children. I'd ask any of the government TDs, go into a school and speak to a child that's have to spend time doing their homework at the end of a bed with two sisters, three brothers, all in the same room, through no fault of their own. I think in fairness, a lot of them would say that they do talk to people in, in, in duress all the time. And you know what, we don't well, know. they take photographic even, opportunities and, you know, okay. say that they understand, but the the the, unfo- the reality is they don't because they're okay. not in that situation. Okay, okay. Um, which brings us on actually to somebody who possibly has more of a claim to know what she's talking about. Uh, people are thinking anyway. We just want to touch on. There's a lot of pieces across the papers again today, Kevin, about the sock Dems and specifically. Uh, uh, Holly Cairns and a big, big interview in the Mail on Sunday, a big spread in the Sunday Times. So yeah, on it goes. It's fascinating that she has done something which is very rare, which is she has managed to maintain her presence into a second weekend news cycle and it's not negative stories. It's it's all um, about, she's talking, well, she must use the word housing in all of those interviews seven, eight, ten times. So it's very clear where she is making her pitch towards younger people. That, she, that she gets it. That, that she, she gets, gets it. it. She is living at home. She talks about as she comes from a farm in Cork. She'd love to build on the land at home, so she's lucky to have land. But the cost of actually building something is too much, and she's on a hundred thousand euro as a as a TD. Um, so she lives in some sort of converted flat at her mother's house. Um, so she is basically saying that none of the political parties get it, and it's obvious the pitch she's making is that if you want change. I'm real change. I am a millennium, a millennial. I'm in my 30s. I've experienced all this myself. <coughs> so she, it, it's just, it's very interesting because it's where politics is going now. Housing is becoming the big thing. And I've long had a theory that we fought, we've seen elections fought in the past, Brendan, on health. And the truth of it is we care about health when granny's on a trolley or when one of our parents is in, in bother and needs something. And then we kind of move on and get on with our life. But housing goes through every generation. 
Um, and, and, you know, the more issues you talk about in here, house, housing is at the bottom of so many of them as well. Yeah, I see your point. Um, Linda, you were a member of the Social Democrats uh, before then, you yeah. joined Labour. Yeah. yeah. Are you sorry? No, you didn't, you didn't <laughs> stay for this exciting Wait. new uh, dawn. Well, first and foremost, I can never be accused of uh, being an opportunist. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I left before Holly Mania gripped the world, but um, I, I, can, I can say as a fellow female I'm incredibly proud of Holly Kearns and what she will achieve and has achieved so far she's a very impressive politician I left Do you think there will be like you were talking about the, the privileged ones you feel don't get it no and like look no, none of us are saying that's a factor I think this is just your kind of yeah. impressions of things might she feel like somebody, despite what Kevin says, the hundred grand like and you know the, the land to build at home and all that might she feel like somebody who gets it more Yes yeah. Of course she gets it, yeah, because she can absolutely come from the place of not being able to rent in her own county, not being able to build, like Kevin was saying. Um, like She is in touch with what the lived experience is for many um, within that generation. Um, I was a member of the Social Democrats. Um, I'm not here to, you know... The, the only people that I suppose benefit from when Labour and Sock Thames go against each other is those that we need that we're opposing within the government, could, and we're not holding could, them could to I account. Could I ask you? Could you, without uh, c- calumniating anybody, could you tell us why you moved uh, yeah. from the Sock Thames to Labour? So um, I'm a trade unionist first and foremost, and I suppose in terms of workers' rights, I felt I my ideals ideas and my belief system and choices were more supported within the Labour Party and within the trade union um, so, movement. So do you feel, is the Labour Party a bit more still old-fashioned left, like it's about class, it's about workers, it's about that kind of thing? Well, the very Whereas essence of the Labour Party... A lot of the Party, modern, more progressive, younger left maybe are gone off on other issues and have forgotten about class. No, I mean, the, the very crux of the Labour Party at the start was the trade union movement um, there's youth within the Labour Party we only seen a new election of the of Labour youth yesterday but in terms of what the Labour Party offers and in terms of ah, no, 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 no party political broadcast why no did, you, political why did broadcast. you leave the sock because I felt the Labour Party it's, they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk You're in good. terms you of brought workers that back rights to, back to a, a party political broadcast ok we're going to take a break um Professor Alan Barrett, Linda O'Sullivan, June Doyle, uh, June Doran, sorry, and Kevin Doyle staying with us. And I think we might have Eamon Dunphy on Gary Lineker after the break. Text. Okay, going back to Gary Lineker briefly. Good morning, Eamon Dunphy. Good morning, Brandon. So look, it looks like um, the BBC uh, sports coverage is in chaos again today. Uh, match of the day two and women's Super League programmes will be following a much reduced format. What are your thoughts on it at this stage now as it's panning out, Eamon? Well, I think the BBC uh, have, you know, made a big mistake. I think they'll be they'll pay for the mistake. I think uh, I didn't uh, agree with uh, Gary Lineker's comparison uh, with uh, Germany in the 1930s and the behaviour of this awful British government, which is awful and uh, is undoubtedly given to. Uh, prejudices um, but uh, he has a right to say it um, and he's not involved in the political area if the charge was impartiality which it appears to be um, uh, the, the person who should be uh, in trouble is Richard Sharp who's the chairman of the BBC 
Uh, he was a donor, £400,000 he gave to the Tories, and he was the man in the room with a third party arranging an £800,000 loan for Boris Johnson when Johnson was Prime Minister. He is the chair of the BBC. I think he should be asked about impartiality. The idea that he is um, supervising uh, Gary Lineker or vetting uh, Gary Lineker is ludicrous. Yeah. So, Eamon, sorry, go on. Well, there's been a very impressive show of solidarity from all the sports people uh, at every level, Alan Shearer, Ian Wright, people in the production, uh, Q's editors, everybody. They have refused to work uh, because they don't believe Gary Lineker should have been treated the way he was treated, uh, and they don't believe that uh, at the top of the BBC there is impartiality. And it's Eamon, what, what, what happens now? Because I think if one thing's become clear is that the BBC probably needs Lineker more than Lineker needs the BBC at this stage. What's your prediction? Is, is this going to be solved? Is somebody going to climb down or does Lineker go elsewhere? Well, get, Lineker could earn five times more than the 1.3 million he's earning from the BBC. If he went to BT Sport or ITV or Sky, I don't think Sky probably is an option, but certainly ITV and BT Sport are. He's very good at his job. He's uh, very popular uh, with viewers, hugely popular, uh, and clearly has the respect of his colleagues. I've never known anything in sport in particular. Such solidarity, such um, selflessness uh, as to walk out in support of uh, Gary Lineker, as we've seen. It says a lot for Lineker's uh, character, uh, his popularity and respect and esteem he's held in uh, by those who work with him, which, as you know, Brendan, is the most important thing uh, to have. Absolutely. So it sounds like you're saying the BBC are going to have to eat some humble pie here, Eamon. If they're lucky, he might. He may decide to leave. <laughs> but he, yeah. you know, humble pie. I think they ha- they have serious questions to answer uh, about the impartiality of Richard Sharp, who is the chair of the BBC. And he's a pal of Boris Johnson's. Yeah, it certainly has shown, a, shown more of a light on that, hasn't it? Okay, uh, and okay. It, that, that's going to keep going. Eamon Dunphy, thanks a million for taking the call. Talk to you Pretty soon. Uh, d- just before we go, we have about a minute here. We should reference the Oscars, Alan. You picked a, a piece out of the Sunday Times where they're, they're kind of yeah. suggesting that Colleen Kuhn could could pull a yeah, surprise tonight. It, it seems to be. I mean, firstly, I, I, I treat this, it's a little bit like Ireland qualifying for the World Cup and the Euros, you know what I mean, and on the world stage. Now, because we're not qualifying for the World Cup and the Euros, my attention has shifted. The Oscars, the Oscars is the most important thing ever. You know, yeah. Exactly. But in spite of all the, the nominations, it does sort of seem that they're, they're very sort of competitive and so the likelihood of actually winning Oscars might be a little bit uh, lower than people uh, anticipate with the exception of the Colleen Kuhn for his best um, international movie or non-English language movie uh, and even there, there there's a significant competition from um, All Quiet on the Western Front and the Belgian movie Close um, which I saw a number of weeks ago so it's going to be a very exciting night uh, I have to say but it's just uh, would fill you with pride uh, at a time we're not qualifying for soccer tournaments yeah, absolutely. Okay, listen, thanks. And we'll be coming back to the Oscars uh, l- later in the show with um, with our entertainment panel. Um, Professor Alan Barrett, 
uh, Linda Sullivan, special needs assistant force campaigner and member of the Labour Party. <laughs> if anyone could have been mistaken about that, Linda. June Doran, estate agent with June Doran Properties in Carlow and Kevin Doyle, group head of news at Media House, uh, Media House Ireland. Thank you all very much for that very lively hour. And now it's just coming up to 12 noon and we'll go to the newsroom and Vivian Trainer.